Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. After months of exploring a bid for governor, State Senator Bill Eigel made his 2024 campaign official last week at St. Charles County Regional Airport. We've got a whole lot to say on that. How the swamp has screwed things up in our state. And how we, all of us here tonight, are working to upend the status quo that will bring about a bold, conservative Missouri. The Weldon Spring Republican is trying to cast himself as an outsider and trying to make the argument that he would be more conservative than Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe or Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. On the latest edition of Politically Speaking, Eigel breaks down how he thinks he can win this competitive campaign and talks more about how he would actually govern if he's elected. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in mid-Missouri, she covers all things state government and politics for St. Louis Public Radio. There, Kellogg. And joining us in studio, he was formerly the Ferdinand Magellan of Missouri politics because he was exploring for so long, but the state senator from the 23rd District and now candidate for governor. Bill Eigel. So why did you decide to cast the exploratory moniker off your campaign for governor and just jump right into the race? Well, I I tell you, I've always been saying that I think we need a bold conservative leader in this state. And the exploratory phase was about finding out whether or not sufficient support exists uh, for somebody like me who wants to come in and really kick some apple carts over down in Jefferson City uh, as an extension of what I've already been doing uh, for the past seven years. And what we found in the 11 months, it was, it was 11 months of an exploratory committee, is that 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 support overwhelmingly exists. It, it exists in terms of people, Missourians in particular, that have gone to our website. We've had over 30,000 people uh, sign up on our website uh, to be a part of our team. Uh, we've had folks support uh, our campaign, uh, not just from Missouri, but all around the country to make sure that we have the resources we need to get our, our message out. And if you look at the polling, uh, I'm doing far better than anybody expected. In fact, if you look kind of deeply into the polling uh, for folks that know all three candidates in this race right now. So they're familiar with the lieutenant governor, the secretary of state, and myself. Right now, we're winning more than 50% of those folks. So we have a message that I think is going to be very effective, and we decided to go ahead and make it official last week. Why do you believe that you would be a better nominee than Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe or Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft? 
because I, unlike those guys, I'm willing to break a, a status quo that has existed in Jefferson City for the better part of two decades. And if you look at uh, what Republicans do, and I, I've been traveling, I, I've put about 40,000 miles now on my truck driving around the state. And what I've heard from Republicans is that they're frustrated. They're very disappointed in, in Republican supermajorities that they feel are not doing the big red Republican things uh, that they're seeing happen in other states. You know, look at a state like Texas who passed uh, the, the largest uh, property tax cut in state, maybe uh, national history, uh, just a few weeks ago. They have less Republicans in the state of Texas than we do have here in the state of Missouri. And the reason we're not getting those things done is because too many of our, our, our existing statewide officials are concerned more about preserving. Uh, what works for the powerful few in Jefferson City, and not so much the ideas that the Republicans who send us here want to see us get done. So if I thought that there was that fighter, that change agent already running for uh, governor of this state that would be willing to take on and over, uh, overturn and upend that status quo, I wouldn't be taking the time to run myself, but that's just not the case. Uh, so we're going to have to do this in a manner. Uh, and by the way, I understand right off the bat that uh, even though I'm the underdog, that's kind of an American heritage to be the underdog. So I think we're going to be very successful. Hey, you mentioned polling a little bit. Most public polling, which is questionable, Missouri, does show you in third place. Why are these polls wrong and what will make you a viable candidate? Well, you know, if you look at the polling, let me take you back to 2016 right now. If you look at uh, where at this point in the race, uh, a relatively unknown Eric Greitens was, uh, he was actually polling at a lower level than I'm polling right now. So we have uh, our internal polling shows that I'm actually even with the sitting lieutenant governor and have more than uh, cut the gap between myself and the secretary has been cut by uh, more than by, it's been cut in half just since last summer. So we're making a lot of progress and the mountain that we have to climb versus where we are today versus uh, to, to where we need to get to by next August is far less uh, than the last guy that won a Republican open primary in 2016. So you've encountered some controversy early in the campaign based off a fundraising pitch from a political action committee supporting your candidacy. And the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported that President Trump's attorneys actually sent a letter telling your supporters to stop using his name and likeness to fundraise in support of your campaign. How is that not a massive blow in a state where Donald Trump is probably revered by most Republican voters who you need in order to win this primary? Well, you know, first of all, I, I want to say that I, I support the president, and I think that uh, he's the right guy for the job. I think that he's going to be the presidential nominee for the Republican Party. I think he's also going to be the next president of the United States. Uh, I and, and I want to be real careful because I can't control the actions of outside groups. But that being said, I've seen a lot of the emails, and actually my own campaign is sending out emails, reaching out to Missourians in the state of Missouri, and actually all over the country. And our message is one of a guy that's uh, intending to be a disruptor, intending to be uh, kind of that breaker of molds, that breaker of status quos. And the reality is there's a lot of similarities between myself and a guy like President Donald J. Trump. So uh, as we've had one of the most successful uh, campaigns anywhere in the country, it's attracted the attention of Donald Trump, who is a guy who's naturally very protective of his brand. So what I want to do is I'm going to continue uh, communicating with folks in Missouri and anywhere in America that want to have a fighter at the highest levels of government, even at the state level. But I'm going to look for opportunities to do that in, in hand in hand with the president. We've been talking to their team this week, and I expect that to continue. But why is 
channeling why isn't channeling Donald Trump just a giant non sequitur given that you're running to manage a state government and you're not running for federal office? Uh, because uh, it's a great question. It's because I think inherently, whether you're talking about federal office, whether you're talking about state office, or even if you're talking about local office and our local school boards, folks, I think today are looking for fighters. Folks are looking for for individuals to represent them and lead them that are actually going to upend a, a system, could be at the local, could be at the state, that they're not happy with. They're not happy with outcomes everywhere from our schools to Jefferson City to certainly the federal government. And they're looking for individuals that they can believe in that are going to push back against that. Now, anybody that's watched my career for the past seven years know that I have a tough time getting along with a lot of those powerful special let's, interests let, in Jefferson let's, City. Let's talk about that yep. because that was part of your speech at St. Charles County Regional Airport where you mm -hmm. focused on the, quote, bold conservative leadership. Here is a clip from part of that address. You know who they are. The rhinos. And folks, Jefferson City is full of them. This race for governor is full of them. Politicians that run like Republicans during campaign season with their perfectly manicured makeup and their rehearsed consultant talking points. But when push comes to shove, when they are put in a position of power or trust by the people, when they have the opportunity and ability to defend the great people of this great state, they turn tail and run. So you mentioned Eric Greitens, who ran also on a very anti-establishment Jefferson City message. What is going to be different under an Eigel governorship than a, than a Greitens governorship if you're calling the people that you're going to rely on to pass your agenda a bunch of phony conservatives and part of the swamp? It seems like he you saw what happened to him. He was eaten alive by people in Jefferson City. Well, I, I think the, the problem with Eric Greitens is that we found out once he got into office that he was someone different than he, he actually portrayed himself to be. Uh, I think the difference between Eric Greitens and I is that people have seen me now in office for seven years, and I can be proud, regardless of the outcome of this race, I can be very proud that I have been exactly who I promised to be. Now, a, a, a broader question, I think, Jason, is the fact that, you know, what would, what would a guy like me do to bring the Republican Party back together that's different than what a perhaps a, a Mike Parson or even a Lieutenant Governor Kehoe would do. I would call on Republicans to do Republican things. What fractures the Republican Party is when a Mike Parson goes out and calls on Republicans to raise the gas tax. Uh, that fractures the party because there's conservatives like me that didn't sign up for that. When Mike Parson calls on us to have massive spending bills that spends and I believe waste more money than we've ever wasted or spent in the state of Missouri, that's not a Republican thing and it fractures the party. When we have the COVID environment and Mike Parson, in my mind, does a poor job intervening on behalf of the COVID tyrants that existed in our state and were shutting down businesses. They were uh, they were allowing vaccine mandates to take place. They were putting masks on our kids. When he when he is not the leader and the protector, that divides Republicans. And so what I'm going to do to fix all that is unlike the status quo, which will continue to have what I describe as a center-left uh, ruling majority in Jefferson City, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to call on Republicans to do Republican things. I'm going to call on them to get rid of things like personal property tax and income tax that the other big red states that are prospering and growing, like Texas or Tennessee or Florida, are doing and that we're not. And then folks are going to want to come to the state of Missouri. And when our population grows, 
our state will prosper. That's where we have failed the most. And I think that there's a lot of folks out, out in outstate Missouri and in our cities, Republicans in particular, that understand this and are looking for that person that they can believe in after campaign season's over. Speaking of taxes, if you eliminate the state income tax and property tax, how would you be able to replace that revenue that's vital to an array of governmental services? Well, first of all, I think when we have a conversation about taxes and spending, we have to understand that we as a state are spending far more than I think we should be spending. For example, we are spending twice per person uh, in the state of Missouri than what the state of Florida is spending per person. And you can't argue that we somehow have a more elderly population than the state of Florida uh, and so that our cost is somehow be higher. So uh, understanding that right now, every person in this state, every single person in the state is sending more to government adjusted for inflation than they've ever sent to government before. And yet every person I meet is unhappy with the outcomes. Look at the test scores in our schools. Uh, look at the, uh, the the population growth of our state. By so many outcomes, we are stagnating and we have been stagnant for a generation. So when folks ask me, how am I going to replace the answer? My answer is, I'm not going to replace the revenue. The problem isn't that we're not sending too much money to government. The problem is that government does such a poor job managing that cash that it's created such a burden on the people of the state that other folks don't want to move here and invest in Missouri. That's where we've got to change course. You voted to ban most abortions in the state back in 2019, including instances of rape and incest. Kehoe has expressed some interest in possibly allowing abortions under those circumstances. What do you think of that idea? Uh, I think it's uh, bad on policy, and it's certainly bad uh, politically speaking. Whoops, that was no pun intended. No pun intended. Sorry about that. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's not like that's, that, 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 that line is trademarked, but continue, <laughs> Senator. So, I, I, first of all, uh, I'm of the belief that all life is precious. Uh, now, Mike Kehoe is out there talking uh, about exceptions where he would like to see the institution of abortion expanded in the state. And if I can think of uh, things that aren't going to resonate with Missouri Republicans, l spending your time looking for where abortion ought to be taking place, that it isn't taking place right now, is probably not going to be a message that resonates. Missouri has been sending pro-life Republicans uh, that have supported, have said they were going to support, and then ended up supporting uh, the most, the, some of the most strict uh, the toughest restrictions on abortion anywhere in the United States. And I don't think that suddenly telling all those folks that have been sending those super majorities to Jefferson City that, hey, wait a minute, why don't we turn back and find how, how we can get a little, a few more abortions to occur in this state is a great idea. And really, like I said, philosophically, you either believe that life is precious and it must be defended at all costs or you don't. Mike Kehoe is taking the stance that uh, there are certain instances where life isn't precious, and I think that's the wrong way to go. You know, Republicans like U.S. Senators Josh Hawley and Eric Schmidt, as well as Trump, support having exceptions to abortion bans. Hawley himself has said he's supportive of Missourians voting on the issue, and we have a clip of that. Listen, I, I've celebrated the fact that the Dobbs opinion... Uh, which my wife helped litigate. She's here, by the way, somewhere right around here. Um, I've celebrated the fact that that returned the issue of abortion and life to voters. So, you know, listen, I, I think voters ought to be able to weigh in and um, in, in every state and jurisdiction they want to. I've said at the federal level, my view is where there's national consensus, I think it's appropriate for Congress to act. That's why I support pain-capable legislation. There's overwhelming support for that nationally. But, uh, you know, listen, I, I'll defer to voters if, if and when we get to have that on the ballot, Missouri. We'll see what happens. Those comments were made during the uh, annual governor's hand breakfast, but you were also there. Also, Senator Eric Schmidt, 
basically said that he expects that to be on the ballot inevitably. You know, isn't your stance out of touch with some very conservative Republicans? Well, first of all, I I, I love Josh Hawley. I love Eric Schmidt. I love the work that they're doing up in Washington, D.C. But I would make the case that abortion has been on the ballot every two years for the past two two decades in the state of Missouri. And every time it comes up on the ballot, uh, whether as a direct issue or as a referendum on who we want to represent us in Jefferson City, Missourians have consistently chosen the more pro-life candidates like myself, uh, who they want to represent them down in Jefferson City. In fact, uh, if you guys, I, I know you guys are where Missouri used to be a very blue state. Uh, and one of the biggest issues that I believe uh, worked to change Missouri from a blue state to a red state was the pro-life issue in the first place. And the fundamental belief of the pro-life movement is that all life is precious. And if we get away from that very foundational, fundamental belief, uh, then we are no longer the pro-life state uh, that we talk about being. So uh, it's possible It's possible that in spite of two decades of electoral experience of sending all these pro-life Republicans like myself to Jefferson City, that the people People of this state may have a change of heart. I would find that to be very unlikely, uh, even in 2024 and beyond. When I caught up with Lieutenant Governor Kehoe earlier this spring, I mentioned the fact that he had voted for an amendment that would have barred discrimination in housing and employment and public accommodations for people that are gay, lesbian, transgender, or bisexual. And I asked him, is that a, a point of difference between him, Secretary Ashcroft, and yourself? Here is his full answer, which I know you have made quite a bit of hay about. There, there possibly could be. And as you might recall, uh, Jolie Justice, Senator Justice at the time was carrying that bill. It was part of a larger deal to move something through the Senate when we did that. But I got to tell you that um, I talk to uh, Greg Razor all the time about this, who's very passionate about that issue, is that uh, we need to start looking at where the generations are because my kids, this is not something they think about. And younger people don't think about this. So Republicans, I think, as a whole, need to start getting around many republicans claim to be christians and then all of a sudden somebody comes up and says i think my relationship should be with the same gender sex and all of a sudden we say you know those people are no good we're not the judge or the jury and uh, i really think that there's uh, us as a party are going to have to start kind of getting our arms around where younger people across this country are they're the future of our party eventually they're going to be a democrat or republican or an independent but they're a voter and we're going to have to make sure we know how to connect with them so i'm not sure i'm ready to say i'm 100 percent going to establish this position but it's something i think we should be absolutely watching so my interpretation from listening to lieutenant governor kehoe is that he thinks that the party needs to be more in touch with younger voters and possibly LGBTQ voters who may be conservative. Yet I saw that you were, again, making hay of that comment as something that was really, really bad. Well, what is so objectionable about what he just said there? Well, first of all, I think that uh, that it, I would consider what he said there one of the most insulting statements made towards Republicans uh, of the campaign cycle so far. And here's why I say that. Uh, Mike Kehoe has come out and said that if you don't agree with him on this policy, then effectively, uh, maybe you're not such a great Christian as a Republican. That's what I took from the the comment. And here's here's let me explain my, my stance on this issue. I'm not a big fan of classes uh, being defined by government because every time government defines a new class, 
by definition, it is dividing the population. It is saying, you are in this group over here, and you are in this group over here. And at, at some point, can we as a people be be surprised at how divided our culture is when our government is literally dividing us into different classes legally under legal definitions. So I've never actually been a fan of the expansion of any special classes. Now in Jefferson City, you see all sorts of, uh, of different defined and undefined special classes. Mike Kehoe has been one of the greatest supporters of some of the most power, powerful undefined special corporate interest special classes in Jefferson City. So it's not surprising to me that he's open to the idea that we should divide the population anymore, but I've just haven't been a fan of that. I think so. That you're not a fan of not ha- of having discri- anti-discrimination laws against race or or gender or religion. I'm not a fan of expanding any new definitions in state law or under our constitution that divide the public. Absolutely not. But but answer my answer my question. You you do you think that those types of existing anti-discrimination laws divide the public because those are seen as pretty widespread as good and as things that should be in place. Uh, I'm comfortable with having the ones that we have in place, but I don't want to expand it any further. So another issue that I've talked with both Kehoe and Ashcroft about is the prospect of barring adult transgender people from being able to access hormone therapy and gender transition surgery. And this is not a philosophical issue. Missouri was on the precipice of doing this because of the attorney general's uh, emergency orders that were that were struck down in court. Here is actually Secretary Ashcroft talking about his personal opinion on this issue. Let me be very careful. I don't think anyone should do this personally. But in the role of government, I don't think it's government's role to tell adults, generally speaking, how they spend their own money. Uh, I just... I disagree with it. I don't think people should do it. But there's a difference between what I personally think and where I think the government should be involved. And clearly, when this is happening to children, that in nothing else we would say they have the ability to consent to, it is life-altering, it is irreversible, I think government should step in and say, no, you can't do this. If you're an adult, you want to spend your own money, I disagree with you, but it's not my place to tell you you can't. So that's a pretty similar view of what Kehoe believes, too, because I asked him the same question. What's your what's your thought about barring or curtailing adult transgender people from accessing hormone therapy or gender transition surgery? Well, uh, so first of all, there is a very clear definition between when we're talking people 18 years and younger uh, or 18 years and older and under the age of 18. Uh, And I've been very clear about how I feel uh, about banning that for anybody under the age of 18. Now, I'm going to tell you, the reason I don't support it these procedures for anybody under 18 is because I don't believe this is actual medical care. I don't believe that. Uh, And so it's difficult for me to view this through the lens of if it's not medical care for those under 18, I don't consider it medical care for anybody over the 18, over the age of 18. Now, uh, do we want to start getting restrictions on individuals from doing these procedures uh, over the age of 18? That's not the focus right now. Uh, And I don't expect that to be the focus moving forward. However, I I think that uh, if these surgeries, uh, uh, which present, I believe, a threat to the physical well-being uh, of 
of individual anybody who gets them. But that's why I don't support them personally, and I'm strongly against them for anybody the under age of 18. Uh, that we may have to look at that in the future. But right now, that is not the focus, uh, and we're very focused on protecting kids primarily. I can tell you that I've talked to a lot of transgender adults, and they do not believe for one second that this is not going to be a focus in the future. Are they wrong? I mean, they they again, it's not it's not hypothetical. We the, Missouri almost banned it for adults for a time. So how can you say it's not going to be a focus in the future? Uh, I, I say that I would say that it's not a focus right now. I think that uh, there we restrict even in our society, we restrict certain behaviors, even of adults. You can't go out uh, and and take certain drugs that we have defined as very dangerous. It's illegal to do fentanyl in this state. So uh, I, I wonder uh, if we're going to move forward, I don't. I do not see a medical value in these procedures. I, I, we're not at the point where we're, we're trying. But to a lot of medical them. associations do, and a lot of doctors do, and a lot of trans people do. Uh, and a lot of those medical associations would argue that they're good for kids, and I strongly disagree with them. So uh, that is that really isn't where the conversation is right now. I would be very surprised if in the in the near future uh, that became an issue moving forward. Switching to a different topic, during the legislative session, you gained some attention when you proposed legislation that would ban what's known as red flag laws, which would set up a judicial process to possibly disarm someone temporarily if they're a danger to themselves or others. Why do you think this type of idea should be outlawed? Well, I, I've never been a fan of government databases, first of all. I, I think that uh, my, I've been very clear that creating databases of law-abiding citizens from governor or from government leads to uh, privacy concerns and uh, is the trampling of the, the right to privacy that our citizens enjoy. So red flag laws, uh, which uh, I tried to get banned in this state, I also tried to get banned under that same bill, uh, the local governments from accepting federal dollars to create their own local databases. Uh, and I was, I was sad to see that fail. Actually, it, it failed in, in a Senate, uh, Senate committee, not because of Democrat opposition, but because of Republican opposition. And so uh, it, it's, it's at another battlefield amongst Republicans where there are guys like me who are trying to protect our Second Amendment rights, but not all the Republicans are on our board. And that's pretty disappointing for a lot of Republican voters. I don't like government databases. I think this is another way to track law-abiding citizen. I don't think that's the way that we are going to address crime in our in our urban areas. And the more we focus on methods like that, it's distracting us from the things we need to do to actually uh, reduce crime, whether it's in St. Louis City or even Kansas City, which is climbing in the rankings now for violent crime. Why should someone who is deemed a danger to themselves or others by a judge be allowed to still have a gun? You mean uh, by government? I think it's a very slippery slope when you're allowing government to define uh, when a law-abiding citizen uh, should or should not be able to enjoy rights. And so I've always been uh, a guy that comes down on these issues on the side of protecting uh, the individual rights of the citizen and giving them the benefit of the doubt. So uh, there are a lot of folks that say that we need to have more government engaged in making these precisely the kind of decision that you just described. I am not one of them. I'm going to be the guy that's going to defend from uh, defend against government making and being engaged at, at that level of your your moment to moment living in this state. So then what you know, what are your ideas for preventing or, you know, or at least minimizing the damage or pain from a school shooting. You know, we're coming up on the not quite one year anniversary of the CVPA shooting. What would you do as a result of that to help address gun violence? You know, I, I proposed uh, putting an armed security officer in every public school in the state. 
St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And it didn't get any traction anywhere in the legislature. It would have cost about $80 million. And this is what's crazy to me. We incre- we have the largest budget. I'm not trying to go on a, a budget tangent here. Oh, we'll, we'll get to the budget in the second half of the show. So maybe say maybe maybe keep going. I'll, I'll, I'll let me. I'll just say this: there we spent. We are spending a record amount of money. So uh, we have the dollars to put protection in place for children in our schools, but we don't pursue those mechanisms. Instead, we're focusing on other things that I just don't think are going to make a difference. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Senator Bill Eigel. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Senator Bill Eigel. He represents a portion of St. Charles County in the Missouri legislature, and he is one of three Republican candidates for governor. Sarah, you and the senator just experienced a veto session, so I'm going to turn it back (laughs) to you and have you ask the senator's thoughts about how this extremely eventful veto session went. Yeah, very, very eventful. But hey, I was out by like six for once, which was nice. Uh, You've been (laughs) critical of how lawmakers crafted the state budget, saying that there was way too much spending, but you were also advocating for some veto overrides of projects specifically helping St. Charles County. Mm -hmm. Is that message contradictory? Yeah, on its surface, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? So let me me walk through this. One, the the budget that we passed that Governor Parson proposed and ultimately got signed into law was what I believe to be one of the most wasteful uh, over overburdened state budgets that the state has ever had. We've never spent more money, $51 billion, and I would argue we've never wasted more money. I mean, we had $10 billion amongst that $51 billion of new decision items that included uh, all sorts of things that I had an objection to. And I'll give you a couple quick examples. Tens of millions of dollars for stadium improvements uh, in Kansas City. I think the, the, the women's soccer team out in Kansas City got a $2 million new parking lot. Uh, we had a, uh, we're building building a $200 million concrete overpass uh, walking park over the top of I-70 in downtown Kansas City. So but it's not $200 million of state money. It's $26 million of state money, but the taxpayer is still paying a total of $200 million. Okay, continue. So good, good, good clarification, but it was some state money. So things like that, which were making up a lot of these new decision items. And in spite of all this new spending, what really surprised me about the budget is that Governor Parson found the time to veto a few items in and amongst that budget that I would actually make the case and acknowledge would have helped the people of this state. And I'll give you a couple examples of those. Uh, he he vetoed, he partially vetoed some of the pay raises for our highway patrol. Well, the pay raises for the highway patrol, we have a recruitment and retention problem with our highway patrol. And if you've heard me talk about how would I address uh, crime in the city of St. Louis, I would do so by increasing the highway patrol presence on the highways leading into and out of, out of the cities. And yet, if if we're not recruiting and retaining officers, that's going to be a real problem. So, of course, I would vote for an override of that line item. Another item that I would have overridden, and I've talked about this before, is a $5 million no-interest loan that was going to be given to the city of St. Charles to help them clean up some vinyl chloride that had gotten into their water supply. $5 million to help St. Charles have clean drinking water. <laughs> I I don't know how in the, in the, in the midst of $10 billion of earmarks, Governor Parson found time 
to veto clean drinking water for St. Charles? I think the answer is that he was actually just being punitive for folks that are too vocal about disagreeing with him uh, in Jefferson City. And of course, I fit that mold pretty darn well. So uh, it was frustrating to me. But yeah, absolutely. There were uh, there were several items in that budget that in spite of all the victories of the swamp over the people, as I described that budget, he still found time to uh, veto some of the things that I would have liked to see overridden because they actually are within the role of government and they would have helped some of the people of the state. Governor Barson has said multiple times that he wanted to curtail the $555 million to protect future budgets against shortfalls. Why is he wrong, especially when some of the projects he vetoed really do seem local in nature? Well, if he was serious about, uh, I don't mean to make light of your question, but if he was serious about actually getting the finances of this state under control, he wouldn't have recommended $10 billion in new decision item spending that dealt with pork projects all over the state in order to, uh, that gave us the biggest bloated budget we've ever had in the first place. So uh, Governor Parson, to put, let me put this in perspective. Governor Parson has grown the state budget uh, more in the seven years that he has been the governor than in all the years that we have had a Democrat in the governor's mansion in all the years that Missouri has been a state. So we actually like to point the finger at the Democrats as being the party of big spending and expansion of government, but it has been Mike Parson who has been backed every step of the way by Mike Kehoe, who wants to be the next governor, expanding government to a level in the state we've never seen before. And because we've spent so much of that money down in Jefferson City on these type of projects, we have to wonder where are we going to get the money to get rid of personal property tax? Let me put this in perspective. The new spending items was $10 billion at the state level. The value of every single personal property tax bill for every citizen in every county of the state is only $1.7 billion. And although I know some of those new decision items were federal funding, the growth in state general revenues last year was $2 billion. We could have gotten rid of every personal property tax bill in the state and still had $300 million left over to spend. But that's not what Governor Parson did. He was focused on expanding government. And because that's where his focus is at, that is why Missouri is stagnating. And that is why Missourians and Republicans that I talk to are furious about the direction of the state. One thing that was alluded to during the veto session was how state workers are still underpaid compared to other states. What would you do as governor to make salaries more competitive? Well, I think we actually need to reduce the size of our state workforce and focus on uh, uh, compensating the necessary mo- the, the the remaining uh, state employees to attune so that they can be competitive in the market. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, we have a 55,000 person state workforce, but at any given time, between 4,000 and 7,000 of those positions are empty. Many of those positions have been empty for six months, a year or more. And my question is, why are we continuing to fund these positions where the, the legislature has very little ability to provide the oversight of what happens to those dollars if a position remains empty the entire year, but the department spent it? So I'm going to go in there as an executive and find all these efficiencies. I think we can dramatically lower the size of our state workforce. Look at this. Look at a state like uh, Indiana. Indiana has a similar population size as we do, but they have half the number of state workers. If we could cut our state workforce in half, not by and by the way, not by uh, handing out a bunch of pink slips, but just the natural turnover of the state workforce is two to three percent every year. We could bring that down over a number of years, save hundreds of millions of dollars that we could turn around and roll into precisely the re- the reductions in the tax burden that are causing other states to grow, but we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Because we haven't had the right executive that's willing to make those kind of tough decisions. I'm going to be that person when I'm the governor of this state. Looking ahead to the 2024 session, do you think lawmakers should continue to pursue efforts to make the Constitution more difficult to amend, especially after that idea failed in Ohio? 
Uh, I do. I've always been supportive of that. However, I will say that I don't think the way to do it is by simply changing the 50 plus 1% standard to 57% or 60% because as you just said, that that type of mentality is failing time and time again all over the country. I'm a supporter of what's known as a concurrent majority where you leave the 50 plus 1% simple majority in place and add a second standard to it by simply saying, in addition to having 50 plus 1% overall, you must have a majority of either the congressional districts or the state house districts uh, a vote at least 50 plus one percent and what what you do when you install a requirement like that is you require a broader coalition of the different parts of the state to be engaged if we're going to change the founding documents of the founding document of the state of Missouri so not you won't under our current system you can really get all the votes you need to change the constitution just out of our urban two urban areas on either side of the state under a an added concurrent majority scenario you would have to have a broad coalition not just from urban and suburban interests but rural interests as well and if we're going to change the founding document, I think everybody's going to have to have a much broader consensus, and we can still preserve the idea of majority rules if we just add a concurrent majority requirement. Do you believe that it's important to pass that proposal in order to scuttle initiatives that could legalize abortion in the state? Uh, I don't look at it in terms of one particular initiative petition or another. I think that the reason initiative petition has become such an issue in the state is because uh, measures have made it through the Secretary of State's office and reached the ballot that don't actually comply with constitutional requirements in the first place. Let me give you an example. Amendment 3, which we passed last year, uh, was That was the marijuana petition. It had 14 subjects, 38 pages, and 50,000 words of language that it wanted to add to the Constitution. It was absolutely a clear violation of the Missouri, single, Missouri Constitution single subject clause. Because of that, it should have been rejected from the ballot by the Secretary of State, Jay Ashcroft, but he didn't do that. And he, got, he allowed it to get on the ballot, even though there was no way citizens of the state could have answered a simple yes or no to that question, given so many subjects. And so now, because our Secretary of State has been not acting on that issue, on the Clean Missouri Initiative, on the Medicaid Expansion Initiative, now we're becoming a, a chaotic realm where any out-of-state special interest is coming into Missouri and putting, trying to get ballots, uh, measures put on the ballot that are not constitutional and never should be there in the first place. I, so. I know we're running short on time, mm -hmm. but if he is done that it almost certainly would have caused a lawsuit so how would that have actually stopped it from getting to the ballot if a judge said this isn't multiple subject well it, it's funny that you mentioned that because the missouri supreme court has weighed in and verified and backed up his power under section 116.120 to make that precisely that kind of decision so if the courts are going to change if the courts are going to change direction on their own uh, on their own precedent that they gave in the early 1990s, the attorney general has come out on this. Well, then we have a constitutional problem and we need to address that as well. One more question before you le I let you go, because I know you need to get to Washington, Missouri, and you can't teleport there. Um, <laughs> you have been in support of hand counting ballots, yes, which is a big thing that Mike Lindell, frankly, wants. Mm -hmm. And frankly, and I say this as somebody who has followed election administration pretty carefully, Mike Lindell sounds absolutely nuts on a lot of issues. And frankly, a lot of Republicans believe that, too. And I think you actually went to one of his events, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, a couple, actually. Why, why are you, like, advocating for a position that seems to be heralded by somebody who engages in outright conspiracy theories and not sound elect elect election administration policy? You know, I... 
I've met a lot of people in this state that have a lot of concerns about election and integrity. You know, Mike, certainly Mike Lindell is one of them. But let's put Mike Lindell aside sure. and just talk about all the Missourians who are coming together, uh, have some concerns about our election integrity. And every time they find something that they think is uh, out of line or they find something that indicates there may be a vulnerability, honestly, they're attacked. They're called names. Uh, they're 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 just dismissed. like I did right just, now. Just by like, the way. <laughs> but continue. And, and so here here's here's what all of the the thing that all of those people have in common is that they're just trying to fight for fair, transparent, <clears throat> and and solid elections. And I think that is a great thing. I love the idea of hand counting of ballots. It worked for the state of Missouri for more than a hundred years. And if you look at Republicans, put Mike Lindell aside. We had. A vast majority of Republicans want to re- want to go back to the hand counting of ballots and get rid of all these machines. I'm glad you asked this because I'm the only Republican gubernatorial candidate ready to get rid of and fight to get rid of every machine in every precinct of the state and go back to the hand counting of ballots. We actually did hand counting of ballots, which I, just for 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 the benefit of the listeners, hand counting of ballots is already legal in the state of Missouri. Mm-hmm. Any, any county clerk could decide to do it. And actually, we had a county decide to do hand counting of ballots down in Osage County in the last uh, municipal elections just a few months ago. They were able <clears throat> to re- report their results about the same time that we were seeing results come in from the machine-counted uh, uh, counties. So I, I think that is, is a great way to address some of the concerns and vulnerabilities that I see in the machines. And we already have the system in place. So why not go have those conversations? Let's continue to, if there are, uh, if there are problems in our election system, I'm going to be the guy that's going to go in there and reform them. Let's get rid of those machines. And everybody's going to have more trust in the system. Well, thank you, Senator, for subjecting yourself to a lot of difficult questions. We appreciate your time, and we look forward to doing the same thing to Kehoe, Ashcroft, and Crystal Quaid in the months ahead. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our stories at stlpr.org. And, Senator, how can people learn more about your no longer exploratory gubernatorial campaign? <laughs> Absolutely. BillEigel.com. It's my website. We've been driving folks there. Certainly, we're on Facebook, at Bill Eigel, uh, or excuse me, at Eigel for Mo, and on Twitter, excuse me, on X. It's not Twitter anymore. On X, at Bill Eigel. So check us out. Uh, let's go, Missouri. Thank you very much, and until next time, so long. smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.